We are beginning tonight a new study in the Heidelberg Catechism. And we will be getting some of those uh, little catechisms before long. But we're not even getting to the questions tonight. We are rather uh, getting an introduction to this. And we're coming to God's Word in the next to the last book in the Bible, in the little book of Jude. Jude, and we'll begin reading at verse 1 of Jude. Let us consider God's word. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Amen. We end our reading there at verse 3, and we trust that the Lord will bless this brief reading of his holy word. Our brother Jude is writing here, and he declares mercy and peace and love be multiplied and that we are those sanctified, set apart by God the Father, preserved in Jesus Christ. That is another term for his redeeming us, his preserving us, and called and it is especially the calling work of the Holy Spirit that brings us to Christ. And he wanted, as so many of the others who wrote about the common salvation, he wanted to write about that. And yet, as he came to write, it was needful. It became the burden to write to the believers to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. And this matter of the Heidelberg Catechism was such an effort on the part of our brother that God used in particular. He did have some help from some others, but he was used of God to write this catechism long before our catechism, our shorter catechism, and our larger catechism were ever written. In fact, 80 years before. And so, in beginning our study of this wonderful catechism, we do so by first learning about its main author, Zacharias Ursinus. Ursinus was actually born in Poland, but 
He was, of course, of German extraction. And his natural German name was Zacharias Bayer. But it's not B-E-A-R. It is the German B-A-E-R. And it meant the same thing as a bear, as a wild, a ferocious beast. But um, when he became a student at the University of Wittenberg at age 15, he did like so many of the others did. He changed his name. Melanchthon, Echolampadius, and so many of those guys took Latin names. Now, although Martin Luther had been dead already for three years, Zacharias was thrilled at the opportunity to be there and study under the great scholar, Luther's right-hand man, Philip Melanchthon. Now, many of the young scholars would give themselves Latin names. And he took the name Ursinus because that is Latin for his same last name of bear. Ursinus means a bear. And this man did become something of a bear as far as in his opposition to falsehood went. He did a wonderful job earnestly contending for the faith and endeavoring to promote unity in the body of Christ. Because what he wrote as the Heidelberg Catechism became known as one of the three forms of unity. And uh, that is along with the uh, Belgic Confession and the Canons of Dort. So Ursinus was very ecumenically minded. Now, what I mean by that, at that time, he was very strongly in opposition to Roman Catholicism, as were the Lutherans. But he was very ecumenically minded, meaning that although he was a Lutheran, he studied under several other men. He studied in Strasbourg, there in the place of Martin Bucer, the, uh, the reformer who was not himself a Lutheran. And then he studied under Pierre Verret, and he also studied under John Calvin at Geneva. So after having preparations for years in the University of Wittenberg among the Lutherans and spending time with the uh, believers in Strasbourg and then going to Geneva and also Lausanne and studying under Calvin and under Verey, he returned to his native Poland and he was beginning to minister there, and he decided to do some writing from all that he had learned. And he published a pamphlet on the sacraments, and immediately it got him into trouble with the Lutherans 
the Lutherans charged Ursinus with being more reformed than Lutheran. And when Ursinus uh, was dealt with by the Lutherans, he was driven out of Poland and he went to live in Zurich. And there in Zurich, Switzerland, he became good friends with Heinrich Bullinger and also with Peter Martyr Vermigli, one of the Italian reformers. And Vermigli had a, had a great time teaching in England as well as teaching in Switzerland in finding refuge from the persecution of his native Italians who wanted to do away with him. But these men had a great influence on uh, our brother Ursinus, and the uh, ruler of that part of Germany where um, he had studied under uh, Melanchthon and Wittenberg was Frederick III. And Frederick III was also trying to work and make some unity and peace between the Lutherans and the Reformed because he had some of both in his uh, jurisdiction. And so he, he was much in favor of trying to bring them together because it had been a long while since they had that meeting, the colloquy at Marburg, where Luther and some of the other Lutheran theologians had met with the Reformed theologians. And uh, there, Luther and uh, the uh, Reformer from Zurich, okay, okay, Ulrich Zwingli, they butted heads and uh, they did not come to any agreement in regard to the sacraments. And so uh, Frederick III was in favor of trying to uh, do something to bring about unity between the Lutherans and the Reformed. So these men in Zurich, Vermigli and Bullinger, recommended um, Zacharias Ursinus to Frederick III. And so Frederick III was very happy to make Zacharias Ursinus the professor of theology at the University of Heidelberg. He had been greatly educated. And so he went there in the year 1561. And after he was there for a year, being encouraged by Frederick III to write a catechism that could hopefully bring together the Protestant brethren, in the year 1562 and 63, Ursinus wrote the Heidelberg Catechism. And because... Ursinus thought so much like the Reformed theologians. 
after the death of Frederick III, who was really protecting him from the uh, very strong-minded Lutherans there, uh, once again, he was forced out of Heidelberg. And Ursinus had written the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Lutherans recognized that it was very reformed. <laughs> and so they, uh, they ran him out of Heidelberg, and Ursinus spent his remaining years teaching in a reformed academy in Neustadt, Germany. And although the Heidelberg Catechism was not appreciated by the Lutherans, it is in regular use even to this day by at least 15 different Reformed denominations. Ursina set forth his catechism in 129 questions and answers, but he divided them into 52 Lord's Days so that Hopefully, you could get through all of the teaching each year. And um, since his catechism was uh, written in the 1560s, it was studied by all of the European Protestants. And it was also used by our Westminster forefathers when they formed the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Larger Catechism, and the Shorter Catechism in the 1640s. So this was 80 years before in the 1560s when he wrote the uh, Heidelberg Catechism. Now, we would not think at all that we would make it through the Heidelberg Catechism in a year. It just won't happen. So I could say that right at the beginning. Now, um, Hercules Collins also took the Heidelberg Catechism and he devised a Baptist Catechism out of the Heidelberg Catechism in 1680. So this Heidelberg Catechism has great acceptance among most Protestants. Now, in the will of God, we will not be able to get through it in one year. It'll take much longer, but we will be getting, God willing, copies of the Heidelberg Catechism to use as we uh, begin the questions and answers. Uh, the Lord willing, we will be getting that for our use. Now, Ursinus introduces his catechism by explaining that the true church follows the teaching of the whole inspired Word of God, both Old and New Testaments. And he makes it very clear that the church is God's separated people. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 17, Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. He quotes that right at the beginning. 
And also Revelation 18.4, he quotes, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partaker of her sins, and that you receive not her plagues, of her plagues. Now God wills for his people to be a separated people, and Brother Arsenus gives reasons for that, that God would have his people to be a separated people, number one, because he is holy and he will not be associated in any way with any evil or with anything to do with the devil and darkness. And there in First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, the scripture goes on to say, what fellowship hath Christ with Belial, another name for the devil. And he gives a second reason that the church should be separate and, and pure because the church must be clearly visible in the world that the elect scattered throughout the earth would know to which society they should join themselves because there is no salvation outside of the church. So there should be a visible, easily visible character to the church in the world. Now, he gives several marks whereby we may recognize the true church. And then he goes on to give the evidences of the, the truth of the Christian faith. And these sort of overlap, but the marks whereby we may recognize a true church are very important, as the Reformers pointed out. First, the pure teaching and preaching of God's Word. Second, the proper administration of the sacraments. And number three, obedience to the doctrine of the word, both in faith and in practice. He says the pure doctrine of God's word consists of only two parts. The pure doctrine of God's word consists of only two parts, the law and the gospel. And the gospel is Christ himself. He declared, he says that the Savior himself declared this very division. We'll turn over to Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, and he gives verses 44 through 48. Here are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. When the Lord had opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. Verse 46. And said unto them, thus it is written. And thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations. Beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. Now, he, uh, he actually 
had been uh, quoting to them regarding the scriptures. And in, in verse 44, he said to them, that we're supposed to start there at verse 44. He said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. And then he goes down and he said, Thus it is written and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And Brother Arsenis is saying that Christ is saying that there is that natural division between the law of God and the gospel. For Christ is the subject and the substance of all the scriptures. Scripture doctrine contained in the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The doctrine of the gospel is the person and the saving work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Both the law and the gospel were revealed from heaven for our salvation. The major differences in the law and the gospel are these three, he says. First of all, the law prescribes what is to be done and forbids what is to be avoided. Whereas the gospel announces what Christ has done for the free forgiveness of our sins. Second difference in the law and the gospel, the law is both revealed by nature and by divine revelation. Whereas the gospel is only revealed unto salvation by two things, by both the written word and by the effectual application of that by the Holy Spirit. The difference in the law and the gospel in that second point is that the law is obvious from nature as well as from divine revelation. But then the gospel is only revealed savingly by the written word and by the effectual application of the Holy Spirit. The third difference, he says, between the law and the gospel, the law promises life only upon the condition of personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. Whereas the gospel bestows salvation solely on the condition of faith in Christ. Now, how can you identify a true congregation of God's people? He's already said that it is the faithful declaration of God's word, the preaching of the gospel, the biblical practice of the sacraments, and by the a matter of obedience to the Word of God. And now he says how you can find a true church. And the doctrine of the church, it is 
the way that you find a church by studying the doctrine of the church. The doctrine of the church was both ordained by God and revealed by him to the apostles and prophets. And the same Holy Spirit that witnesses with our spirit that we are the children of God is the one that confirms the truth to the conscience in a way that yields peace and assurance that we are indeed being ministered to in a true Christian assembly. And where does that come from? But 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 25. If one of the unlearned comes in and he hears the word of God being proclaimed, then what will he say? He will say that God dwells indeed with his people there. Now, to have that peace of conscience of knowing that you were in a biblical assembly and only a true Christian assembly regards the whole Ten Commandments, he said. He said that all of those that are not true churches trim the Ten Commandments one way or the other, as Romanism does and the others do. But only a true church regards the whole Ten Commandments as still viable and applicable today. And only a true assembly of God's people preach the true gospel of Christ and faith in him alone for eternal salvation. That is contrary to Romanism and to every other heresy. And here on this uh, particular page, he says that the gospel is so obvious that it is God's method of delivering us from sin without doing any violence to the justice of God. And yet this glorious gospel is obviously from the living God because it ministers solid comfort to the conscience, affords real and substantial and true peace. And it is obvious that the gospel is divine. Okay. Now, a true assembly of God's people gives all glory to God and takes none for herself. It is so clear that the truth of the Christian religion is the only authentic and true religion because the history of the church, the history of God's people reaches all the way back to creation. There's no other religion that can trace its roots all the way back to God bringing this world and the human race into existence. And the miracles that God records in his word are all well attested and confirmed by the multitudes that saw them. And there were no denials ever recorded in history 
of any of the miracles in God's word until you come to the modern era. The predictions and the prophecies that reached over thousands of years have been fulfilled and the rest will be totally fulfilled that have not been fulfilled. And it is obvious that the word of God is true because the word of God is always opposed by the powers of darkness. And the evidence of God's goodness and truth have always been the object of satanic attack. Now, the divine preservation of God's people through the ages is another proof of the truth of the Christian faith because God has kept his people alive in spite of all of the efforts of the enemy to destroy the church. It cannot be destroyed. The testimonies of the martyrs also demonstrate the great faithfulness of God because even in dying, the martyrs were filled with joy because they knew that God was with them. And that is not true in the case of any other religion. So we look forward to studying together the catechism as we will uh, go on to have one more little section of introduction and then we'll actually get into the catechism itself. Now this is a wonderful thing because so many groups that we know of even today are using the Heidelberg Catechism and the answers. I, I will share with you this, uh, this first one that is so wonderful. The first Lord's Day, question one, what is thy only comfort in life and death? And our brother Arbor has quoted this here before. What is thy only comfort in life and death? The answer, that I with, my, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins, and delivered me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. That's quite an answer. And how wonderful it is. The question of comfort is placed and treated first because it embodies the design and the substance of the catechism. The delight is that we may be led 
to the attainment of sure and solid comfort both in life and death. On this account, all divine truth has been revealed by God and is especially to be studied by us. The substance of this comfort consists in this, that we are engrafted into Christ by faith, that through him we are reconciled to and beloved of God, that thus he may care for and save us eternally. How wonderful. So we are going to conclude tonight. Are there any questions regarding our introduction here to the Heidelberg Catechism? Fifteen sixty-two and sixty-three. During those two years, he finished it, and uh, he, that was a good eighty years before our Westminster forefathers even met together. Yeah, forebearer, or like the the Tyndale version of the Bible in, in some sense. It was yeah, very much drawn from the oldest Geneva Bible was. When was that one? Yeah, you know, Brother Mac. Okay, yeah. I'm not certain about Brother Tim, the Geneva Bible, the oldest one was 1560 is the release date. Oh, according to according 1560. To, according to Google, 1560 is the release. Well, that's uh, that's, they, that's right around the same time that he wrote. We should mention who the teacher was of the gentleman who crafted the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgian Confession. I think he did. Uh, did he? Uh, okay, yeah, you know, um, Pierre Veret taught no. both uh, Gino Debray. Guido, Guido, Guido Debray, as well as Ursinus. Yeah. Because we did note that uh, he studied under Veray and uh, studied under Calvin as well as Melanchthon. And uh, he also studied in Strasbourg where Busser was. Busser was still alive uh, for a while there during his time.